Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with anyone who dedicates their lives to protecting, researching and documenting nature. I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects and worldwide environmental issues. Today my featured coffee is from Chip Coffee Co. While I haven't had the chance to try this myself, their ethical and sustainable credentials have been well researched by me and vouched for by some trusted industry friends. I'll talk more about them at the end of this episode. In this episode, I talk with Scott Goodrich, a marine scientist, conservationist and director of the Plover Rovers. We talk about salt marsh and seagrass meadows, their links to blue carbon, and bringing effective and accessible science communication to coastal communities. Hi Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me at short, at such short notice. Um, we'll start it off as we usually do by getting to know you a bit more. Could you tell me a bit about yourself and where your interest in wildlife and conservation first started? Yeah, so um, my interest in conservation probably started when I was about, I would say, seven, eight years old. Um, my both my parents were, were nature people. They, they were both like six, 68 generations, so they were hippies and they, there was a close connection to nature, even though I, I grew up in a, in a large city, but um, we always went, went out into nature. And it, it was very clear to me from an early age that I was somehow going to be involved in nature conservation. Um, I joined Greenpeace when I was around that age, seven or eight, and I always saw myself in one of these little inflatable boats saving the whales. And uh, so I think that's really when it started. And I wanted to be a, a natural scientist back then. That was actually my my um, my goal. Uh, and uh, I deviated a little bit from that path in between because then I got into rock music and um, then I was a professional musician for a while. I played in a, in a punk, heavy rock band, moved out to California, did that professionally for some years. Um, then I went back to school, um, but I still didn't do the natural uh, sciences pathway at first. I actually studied classics, um, so I've got a master's in, uh, in classics and uh, then I worked a bit as a teacher. Um, and then, as, uh, as, it, as it happens to so many teachers, I had a burnout, um, actually couldn't work anymore. And uh, that's when sort of it hit me that I needed to get back to my, my actual, my, uh, my need to work with nature. Because I, what I did in that time when I couldn't work was that I went out hiking and I just spent pretty much all my time in nature. And, and that was really, really healing. And I decided, okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to do, uh, I went back, did another undergrad degree in um, environmental and sustainability sciences. Uh, and then I went on to do a master in marine environmental protection. Um, randomly, ra- relatively randomly. Um, first of all, because I love the coast. And that's also what I'm specializing on now. I'm really like more of a coastal scientist than a marine scientist. Um, but also because uh, I just happened to have this one module in my undergrad that was, um, that was focusing on marine topics. And I just thought like, oh, that's great. I, I can somehow, I, I really related to that. And um, yeah, that's how I, how I got to where I am now. Um, I actually then found work as a marine biologist, uh, very sort of straightforward um, laboratory work where I did um, taxonomy. So I was identifying worms. Um, but my, my real passion really lies with outreach and, uh, and science communication. Uh, and that's why when I got furloughed, I 
founded the charity that I'm running now, the Plover Rovers, where we're doing science, uh, marine science um, outreach stuff where we bring, uh, well, I'll talk about that later if, if, if it's of any interest. But anyway, that's, that's how I got to where, where I am now. So it's a, it's a long and winding road. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sounds it. Sounds like a, a pretty exciting life um, and a lead up to, to a really cool career. Um, I'm not going to lie, I'm not a scientific person generally, but identifying benthic species and worms is is generally quite, f like most people's idea of not a fun job, um, <laughs> but I know people, I have some very close friends who would jump at the chance to sit in a lab all day identifying worms. Um, some scientists just absolutely love it, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I had some colleagues. It's it's their it's absolutely like their life. Um, like I said, for me it was it was really interesting. I did enjoy it, but I always knew I wasn't going to be stuck in front of a microscope all day for the rest of my life. So, yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, uh, it's sometimes it's uh yeah people people love the little things, um, but you've got to get out and and see the world beyond the lens, I guess. So talking um. And we will, yeah, definitely get into the Plover Rovers in a little bit. Um, but for now, we're going to talk about getting right into it, talking about salt marsh and blue carbon, cool. uh, terms that most people would be forgiven for not knowing. Um, now, I know this is quite a hugely complex topic. Uh, you can, uh, you can fill books and dissertations and theses with this topic. You can go on for hours. Uh, but could you do the impossible and try and spend a few minutes explaining what blue carbon is and how it relates to salt marsh in the UK. Basically, yeah. your entire research and thesis, squash it down into a few minutes. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no problem at all. <laughs> um, easy ask. No, so blue carbon is uh, basically a, a, a roof, um, or how, how do you say, like a, 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 what's that called? Like when it's like one term for, for several things, uh, uh, umbrella term, term, an umbrella, umbrella term, term, exactly, oh, an yeah. umbrella term for uh, for all the the carbon that is sequestered, so taken out of the atmosphere and stored by marine ecosystems. So mm -hmm. it would be carbon that's sequestered by the ocean itself, by actually the uh, the animals living in the ocean. That's one aspect of blue carbon, um, and by any other um, ecosystems like seagrass meadows, salt marshes, mangroves, or coastal ecosystems that. Uh, that also sequester carbon from the atmosphere. So that's the umbrella term, blue carbon. And it's actually a relatively um, new thing, which is also why it's still relatively unknown. It's been in the news a lot, I think, this year and, and maybe the past year, but the first scientific paper on blue carbon uh, only came out, I think, in 2009. So in terms of like established science, it's relatively new. Um, and looking at the UK, where uh, we one of the, basically the, um, the habitat, the coastal habitat, that's the most common habitat in the UK are coastal salt marshes. So we don't, we do have seagrass meadows, but not very many are left. We've lost about 92% of them um, in the past 100 years or so. Um, salt marshes are still a very common uh, site, luckily, along the, along the English coast or the, the UK coast. Um, so that's why when uh, we talk about blue carbon in the UK, it's mainly salt marshes that we're talking about. It's just the most important habitat um, for blue carbon. In other countries, it would be mangrove forests. Um, if you go into the tropics, there's a lot of research um, on mangroves, uh, for example, coming out of Australia, really interesting stuff. 
Um, but for us, it's really uh, focused a lot on salt marshes. Cool. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, and I think uh, a lot of my listenership is uh, not well versed. They're not experts, but they are quite they're in some form of either science or wildlife um, is just forms part of their lives. So a lot of my listeners will know what a salt marsh is, will know what it looks like, and um, will be really interested to learn more about how it relates to blue carbon. Um, We're gonna jump to another coastal habitat, one you briefly mentioned that's incredibly important, uh, seagrass, seagrass meadows. Um, They're one of my favorite plants because they're just so cool. The fact that a flowering plant exists underwater is, just mind-boggling um, and they are being restored as much as possible around the UK coastline. Could you explain to my listeners who don't know what seagrass is and why it's so important that we try and restore and kind of rewild these habitats? So seagrass meadows are I think important for for so many different reasons. Um, they're first of all they're home to some just amazing wildlife um, which cannot exist without seagrass meadows. I guess the most iconic species would be the seahorse. Um, both, of, both of the species of seahorse that we have in the UK are absolutely dependent on seagrass meadows um, but they host um, a plethora of other wildlife as well that really needs them. They're an important nursery for fish where they can hide from predators. Um, they are also really important ecosystem engineers, which means they really influence their, the coastline where you have seagrasses. So they will, for example, um, attenuate the wave action, which means they're also protecting the coast from erosion um, and from uh, just as, as, as we're looking at more severe weather events ever, ever more often with climate change, seagrass matters could play an important uh, role in, uh, in protecting the coastline from erosion. Um, because as you can imagine, if there's like a blanket of seagrass just underneath the, uh, the surface of the water, um, it'll just slow down the waves when they roll in. So that's an important function that, that they can have. Um, and also they store an amazing amount of, uh, of carbon as well. They actually store carbon at 35 times the rate of uh, tropical rainforests. So uh, it's just amazing. And that's because they, I mean, they do their photosynthesis um, but, and they have a relatively high turnover of their leaves. So um, they, they just grow quick and then they basically the next, the next cycle starts and their decaying leaves are deposited on the sea floor and are building up um, in these thick sort of mats that, uh, that they then grow on. And that is a very, very efficient way of storing carbon away. Um, and, and eventually it, it just becomes part of the seafloor and that's just a very good and efficient way of storing carbon where um, it also just remains down there. It doesn't go back into the atmosphere as much as uh, with other places like in tropical forests, a lot of the carbon is in the living biomass of the trees and quite a lot of that when it decays in tropical climates, it'll just go back into the atmosphere. Yeah. So yeah, yeah seagrass matters are amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, I've, again, not scientific, but I am obsessed by science um, and just how, especially marine science, I uh, don't know what our mutual contact Katie told you, but I'm studying wildlife photography at Falmouth, um, which marine and and natural history photography, which is just such a beautiful location. It's an incredible course. And um, yeah, just being so lucky to be right next to the sea and being taught by marine scientists and it's um yeah seagrass will always have a 
a place in my heart and hopefully I'll be able to get out hopefully next next year when the seas are a little warmer and do some snorkeling um, and uh, and film some which is, awesome. is the ultimate goal for 2022. Um, oh, that, is, that is so great and what I think is also amazing with seagrass is really if you think about that seagrass meadows are relatively rare habitat if you look worldwide um, I think what was the number like 0.1 or 0.2% of the ocean floor is covered by seagrass. So it's very, very little, but they account for, I think around 10% of the, uh, of the carbon burial in the ocean. So if you, if you just juxtapose these numbers with like 0. Point something percent of the, of the ocean floor actually hosting seagrass meadows, but then 10% of all the carbon burial being due to these seagrass meadows, you can imagine how incredibly powerful they are. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, some pretty impactful numbers. Um, how can how can people at home uh, get involved with seagrass conservation in the UK? Whatever your background, if you're literally some person who doesn't have, say, for example, somebody who doesn't have time, who has a nine to five job, who can't get out and do physical restoration, who's not a scientist, just wants to help from from their laptops. What can they do? So one thing they can definitely do is uh, help out with the um with just financing the projects that the uh, that the wildlife trusts are doing because the wildlife trusts are doing some amazing work um they're doing a they're doing a preliminary study right now at the Solent to uh, restore the the seagrass meadows there and then the wildlife trust Essex is doing a um a pretty big project off of the coast of Brighton where they're restoring meadows because they used to be seagrass meadows going all the way up the coast from Brighton to Portsmouth and there's only about like two, two square, uh, I don't know, like a square kilometer of that left or something. It's, there's very little left, but they're going from that and trying to restore it. So, um, and they need, they need, um, uh, I guess, the donations. If you become a member of the Wildlife Trust, then especially of the Wildlife Trust Essex or the Wildlife Trust um, Hampshire and the Isle of Wight, some of that money is just going towards it. So I guess they'll they'll be happy about that. Um, I know there was a seagrass restoration project. Uh, I don't know if that's still running or what they're doing now. Um, about two years ago, that was not in the UK though. That was um, somewhere in the, in the United States, I think, um, off the coast of California, where they had uh, a thing on Zoo Universe. Uh, I don't know if you know that platform where you can um, right. where you can basically do desktop science by looking at very very many photographs that they upload and it's too many for like a single scientist or a single team of scientists to to look at and then you get to look at all these photographs and you can uh, then indicate what species you see on the photograph like or if you see a sea otter or if you see so it's quite cool because you get to see yeah, cool yeah. stuff you also and and that was something where they're always looking for basically citizen scientists to help them with uh, with these photographs so that would be something practical you can do you don't need to commit to doing it for like um an x amount of time every week you can literally just click in um when whenever you have time but like i said i don't know if that project is still running but it's definitely worth checking out stuff like zoo universe um and and just see if there's any any citizen science that you can do from your desk uh, in a couple of minutes every day. Yeah, that's that's definitely great. I think the Wildlife Trust is obviously I've worked with them before, and they are a great great organisation who will be very grateful of your donations and just yeah are very well worth supporting. Um, they also they also oh sorry no no go on go on um, they they also running. Um, 
a petition at the moment for uh, highly protected marine areas. And I think adding your name to that petition would also be very good for seagrass meadows because the highly um, marine, the highly protected areas are the ones where they're going to ban all sorts of dredging activity and things like that, which are, of course, really detrimental to seagrass. So if you get uh, a highly protected marine area, um, that means that they can really go ahead with the seagrass restoration there. So anytime you see a petition like that, just add your name to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's, um, I'm really glad you brought up the US project. I'm not sure if it's still running, but my listeners can research that and check it out because there is a big, a big chunk, about 21%, I think, of people who listen to the podcast are from the United States. Um, so hopefully they can do something on their own coast. Um, and yeah, it's really interesting actually to hear about things being done on the Solent because I've um, looked at seagrass restoration in in and around the River Fowl and the Solent and both those locations are also restoration and rewilding hubs for native oyster populations. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be that they can, I don't know if this is, if there is a massive a sort of science being done on this, how those two species interlink or is there, is there any, any sort of thing you know about that? Actually, I don't know if they're linking that up because that's two things that are being um, done a lot at the moment with the native oysters. That's a really strong uh, sort of strand of research at the moment, but I haven't heard mm. about how the, how the two go together. I know actually for the Solent um, project, if, if anyone lives locally down there, they're, uh, they're in the data collection phase now. Um, they've gotten some money from the National Lottery grant to, uh, to go ahead with the project, which is great news. And they actually are looking uh, for people, if you spot seagrass anywhere on the Solent. So if you spot any seagrass beds, um, then you're supposed to let them know. So you're supposed to send them an email and say, oh, I was down at like X location and I actually saw some seagrass there because they're, they're right now just trying to map it because they don't even really know how much seagrass there is in the Solent at the moment. Yeah, that's really cool. And I've, I've emailed a few people about oysters recently to try and get a whole episode done on, on that restoration wow. projects and rewilding. So maybe uh, once I've got the, the scientific language a bit more coherently, I can uh, talk to them if they'll see if anyone's linking those two, two uh, rewilding projects up because those are, that'd be really cool to see. Um, moving away a bit from science and onto science communication, although arguably that's kind of what you've done so far, having broken down <laughs> a lot of big science talks, but specifically uh, talking about the Plover Rovers, you're the director of this charity. Um, what I've heard of it and seen of it and the work you've done, it's an incredible charity that aims to make marine science more accessible and coastal and ocean literacy. You, got, you want to increase that um, on local communities. Could you talk me through the idea behind the charity, kind of what you've achieved so far and what your hopes are for the future? So the, the idea started out, it was incredibly simple, really. I was at a conference and a lady was talking about um, the, uh, the, the coast path where um, originally they, they planned to, um, to finish it up this year, but then 
Corona happened and it didn't happen. But the idea is that they want Natural England want to make the entire English coast accessible, um, so that they they link up all the all the local coast paths, so that in the end you can literally walk along the entire English coast, also the spots that at the moment you can't reach yet. So that's the, and I thought that was a really cool idea because I love long distance hiking, I love the coast, and I just thought like, wow, this would be really cool. And then she was talking about that a lot of coastal communities are quite deprived, and that actually there's a big disconnect between marine science and coastal communities, where there's a lot of really relevant science being done that would really affect people living locally, but the people living locally have no idea that the science is even happening because they're, they're just not connected to the scientific community if there doesn't happen to be a university in the town. Um, you know, if you're just on some some Norfolk village, uh, you're never going to know about it. Um, and then I thought, well, it'd be cool if you'd just, as a marine scientist, walk the coastal path uh, and just kind of drop into these towns and villages on the way and just chat to people and just not make it like a not make it like a conference or something where you know normal people don't go to because it's going to be boring or because they think it's not for me but where you're really on a person-to-person -person basis um just just uh, chat to people and talk about your own research and kind of uh make them realize that science is not something that happens somewhere far away at university, but it's something that really touches on their lives as well. And then at the same time, sort of taking away from these people what they have to say about their patch of, of coast and the, what they know about it. And, and then kind of like also take that into your research again, that you really know like what these people, what does, what moves these people on the ground who aren't like just some setup for, for some experiment, but they're actual people who live there every day. So that was the basic idea. Um, and first I thought I'm just going to walk this entire path and talk to people and then I realized how, how long that would take and how I don't have time to do that. It's a, it's a big um, undertaking. <laughs> yep. So, and I mean, some people do it and I absolutely like uh, hats off to them, but I, I couldn't have done it. And also I'm not a, an expert on all topics that are relevant. So then I thought, well, it'd be great to get the marine community and to just find scientists who would like to do that. And that's how the charity really started. That was the basic idea. And then because... Uh, COVID happened, so many people found themselves at home um, and in front of their, their laptops and trying to do something productive for their time. So I then actually found a lot of volunteers to help me set the whole thing up. And we were always kind of looking at the year 2021 thinking, ah, oh, like with a little bit of luck in the summer of 2021, we can actually put on events. So we just went ahead, even though there was the pandemic and everything, we just started planning events. We just thought like, okay, let's just go for it. Our events are going to be really small. They're going to be easy to plan and easy to cancel in, in the case that, that nothing, uh, that, that it can't be done. Um, because there's no no big funding involved or anything. We did a couple of, of crowdfunders for our admin costs and stuff, but our events are really very much like you, you get a person out there and the person talks to people and there's no there's no big setup. Most of our events are really um, informal walks. Uh, like we're very much sticking with the original idea with a person-to-person -person flat hierarchy kind of approach. Um, yeah. And that actually then worked out. We did for, for 2020, we did lots of um, webinars that we opened to everyone and just sort of uh, tried to, to communicate science through, through, uh, through that channel, which was great as well. Um, and then from late July on this year, we started doing our actual in-person events. And uh, we have a, a special, um, well, we, we've had a, uh, all, all types of events, really. We had these guided walks. We had some events that really involved uh, the arts as well, which is one of the things that we're really passionate about. Me being a, a, an ex-professional musician, I have a vested interest in, uh, in how art can, can help science communication. 
Um, so we had some great events with, with uh, we had a, a beach coming poetry workshop with a poet up in, on, in the Northeast. We had something with painters. We had a, a sculpturer making a mud monster on a salt marsh day. Um, we had, uh, we've got some music. So, so we got what, that sort of thing where we were trying to bring the arts in. Um, and we had some more sort of traditional um, scientific uh, talks where um, it was more sort of the, the usual suspects that would come out to any kind of wildlife trust talk or something, um, which were like a little bit more high level um, scientific. So we're really trying to offer something for everyone, all ages and all levels of, of interest. And uh, yeah, we've, it's, it's been going really well. Yeah, from the looks of things, it's, uh, you've achieved a lot. Um, why do you think that, I mean, obviously I've asked this before to a lot of different scientists and just people on and off the podcast and everyone has a very unique take, everyone has a very unique answer, but why do you think projects like you're Talking the Coasts 2021 and basically what, why science communication, why is that so important? I think it's, for me, it's a lot about empowering, empowering uh, local people to, to just give them the knowledge, to give them a, a little bit of overview um, what, about the things that are hitting them. So if you're a coastal community and you're hit by erosion or you're hit by the floods or you're, you're hit by all these things, and I think if you just don't know what's going on, if you're really separated from, from the science behind it, you just have your own, little, your own little patch you're thinking about and you just kind of feel disempowered. Um, and you, you don't really know what to do. And I think what I really want to do is that I want to give people the knowledge so that they can see where they are in the bigger picture. And they can, through that, maybe then also see how in the bigger picture they can work together with other coastal communities and they can, they can form alliances where they can take their own fate into, into their own hands. And at the same time, this will mean that the more they know about the natural environment and hopefully the more they're also going to appreciate it, and they're going to kind of be open for um, maybe also new ideas, like for example, these these communities that are being told um, we're not going to we're not going to um, defend your line of coast anymore. It's not feasible. Uh, we're not going to restore the sea the hard sea defenses anymore. But uh, we're going to eventually let this all turn into marshland. And initially, they would just think, "Oh, this is awful. This means that we're going to lose our home, um, and it's really bad." But uh, at, a, at a point where um, this is probably anyway what's going to happen because the government decided not to put any more money into that region. Uh, if they know what kind of positive effects these new marshlands will have, not only for, for them and their children because of climate change mitigation and stuff, but also for the wildlife and everything, they can maybe then um, feel more empowered working with such a project. And even though they might be losing their ancestral home, uh, it might give them like a more positive outlook on the whole thing. So for me, it's really all about the, this nature, uh, this, this relationship, improving the relationship between nature and people by empowering people and making them more, um, making them feel like they just own the situation more. And then through that, they become advocates for nature and they have start having a positive impact on their surroundings. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely... Uh a different take than I've had before so it's really good to get your unique perspective on that. Um, you talked to, you mentioned briefly the government, I tried, I started out being non-political, apolitical on the podcast, uh, by episode three I think it was that pretty much vanished, that stopped, I was like right that pebble mine, US government, what the hell are you doing, um, yeah just, just went out of the window. 
so we are a very political podcast because politics <laughs> is important. Um, but yeah. in, uh, we, we know that the government isn't doing enough. We know this. Um, it's often left to charities and organisations and NGOs with too little money, too little time, too little resources to actually do anything major. Um, if you could, if instead of me being here, there was the environmental minister or the prime minister or the full houses of parliament, you know, a politician who right now could actually start enacting change. What would you say to them? What would you, what's the most important thing that you think that the, the central government of the UK needs to be doing to protect the oceans? I think they need to start to commit not only with words, but with actions to, uh, to really specific goals, like none of this, um, oh yeah, we want to be carbon neutral by 2030, but they need to say like how they want to achieve that. They need to say how much money they're going to spend on the single projects. They need to make that money available. I think in our society, um, unfortunately, it all comes down to money. Um, so they need to redistribute money. They need to stop financing things that are um, just senseless, like uh, HS2, for example, um, like these kind of vanity projects. They need to just take the money out of that um, or of like building ever more roads or digging a tunnel underneath Stonehenge or just the stuff like that. Um, and they need to commit that money to restoration projects. And I would like them to really commit to the idea of rewilding um, and at the same time, I would also like to talk to the education minister because I think it should be made just a major topic in the uh, curriculum so that the next generation that goes out there will have the information they need in order to deal with the climate emergency. And I really think rewilding is a big, big, big point. If you look at uh, just the urban planning, if you still look at everyone's little garden, everyone's little Victorian lawn, um, that is... Uh, that is just still a thing with people. People need to be educated there. So more money needs to go into that, into uh, helping people doing the, uh, helping charities who are doing the rewilding projects, because I think that is really, especially in a country like, like Britain, which is so depleted when it comes to wild nature, um, that's going to be uh, the key. Um, I think any, anything that doesn't use the power of nature in order to uh, to improve our situation with uh, with a climate emergency um it's just it's it's just ridiculous the idea like to build machines that suck carbon out of the air and, and this kind of stuff or like the idea that you have like then this great hydro uh, hydro powered cars and that's going to somehow save the world um i think that's just something i would like to see abandoned and i would like them to really focus on things like um nature recovery rewilding and uh, and really say how much money they're going to spend on that and uh, what they're not going to spend anymore on any of the other craft yeah yeah fully agree i think it's um important to be optimistic and i think it's really important to have hope in these these hopeful goals a lot of there's a lot of people in the movements you mentioned fighting against uh destructive vanity projects and um a lot of them would have a slightly more cynical view if i were to and we have had some pretty hard-hitting episodes so far so as i think yeah definitely we need a bit of uh hope and we need specific actions um and ones that are just really putting putting nature at the f on the the forefront um 
giving nature a front seat again because it's yeah, yeah as you said technology can help a little bit but if you just prioritize all this endless reliance on on new technologies instead of just utilizing ones that have been around for yeah. billions of years like trees yeah. that's a yeah that's a thing, yeah. guys that's a thing Tre- yeah tree, trees are a thing that are, are pretty important for our ecosystems um and pretty important for our, our future survival um maybe think about not cutting them down would be a good start yeah, yeah. um <laughs> just uh, just going out and- on a limb you know and really listening to the science. I think that's another thing, like listen to the science, which is, it's there, the science is there. Um, and, and the scientists are willing to collaborate uh, and just listen to them. Don't only use them as, as like a little thing you use during your election campaign saying like, oh yes, we're going to listen to the scientists. And then once you're, you're elected, you're just like uh, out the window. Um, there needs to be way more accountability as well. Um, and, uh, and probably, um, I'm not even gonna start talking about the media. Uh, and who owns most of the? Um, oh, this is a here. that's a whole other episode right yeah. there. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, th- I think it's interesting what you said that with um, a lot of people with different organizations who are fighting against against all of this destruction that's happening would have a more cynical view. And uh, I think that's one thing that we've actually got in our mission statement as the Plover Rovers is that we want to focus on positive messaging, even though of course we know as scientists, um, we know about the doom and gloom and we know that a lot of stuff is not looking very good. But at the same time, we think that um, if you just scare people all the time, uh, it, it, it kind of, some people will be kind of shocked into action which is good, but other people will just feel paralyzed. They just, they'll, they'll feel like, ah, oh, this is hopeless. I'll just go home and watch Netflix now for the rest of my life until we all die. Um, so I think this, this, like, <laughs> this positive messaging can just be really, really powerful where you, like I said, when for me it's about empowerment, I mean that I really want people to go out there and take things in their hands and do something and not just kind of be like, ah, oh, yeah, all the trash, but oh, it's too much. So I'm not going to pick up any of it. Or like, you know, just just this positive feeling of empowerment, I think, can just uh, can just really, really be something that that can, in the end, just uh, really achieve bigger goals as well by empowering the single people. And I think positive messaging can just be an important, like like the arts as well, the power that comes with 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 the arts. I think that's all just sort of positive things that can push people towards being hopeful and um, invested in, in saving our future. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, would, I would definitely agree. And positive messaging is undoubtedly important. Um, talking about something that people can do, go and pick up in their hands and do, um, I have a huge number of unread books, like a ridiculous in- amount, so I probably shouldn't be buying any more. But in the spirit of the Plover Rovers and science communication, could you recommend one book that you think will really increase the ocean literacy of my listeners who want to learn learn more about the oceans? The Unnatural History of the Sea by Callum Roberts. Yeah, that's um, been recommended yeah. a lot. Yeah, that is an amazing read. It's not positive messaging, um, although the the end. I mean, it is. It ends kind of like on a on an optimistic note. So you have to read it to the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's an amazing read. Um, I think I think for me that was one of the most important books that I read uh, leading up to my when I did my masters. It was on our reading list that the uni gave us. Um, one of the one of the books on there, and for me that was a real um, 
an immense eye-opener and like talking about shifting baselines and, and just important stuff that is important to be aware of when we're talking about rewilding and nature restoration, like which, which baselines do we even want to look at? And that's something that doesn't only go for the sea, but goes for, for all habitats, really terrestrial habitats as well. So you can, yeah, so that's one, definitely. If there's just one, then read that one. Amazing. Yeah, I've, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because I wanted to put it on my reading list as well. And it would be great to, I was thinking it'd be great to get it, someone mentioning it in the podcast. Um, so thank <laughs> you. Perfect. Um, before we finish, we're just going to do a little quick fire round. So this is like four questions that I ask all my guests, guests since episode one. It's always the same four. Um, try and answer as quickly as possible, I guess. Um, without but if you take a little longer if you think there's a question that deserves a longer answer uh feel free just just okay. uh, ramble on um it yeah it's not a quick fire round anymore some people have gone on for like three minutes per question and their answers have been so fascinating i've been like ah you can have it um so first off what is your favorite animal ah uh, <laughs> i don't i don't think i have a favorite animal i just i just love them all um and i think it's also because i'm i've been an anti-speciesist for really long so um i just see everyone as as really like just their own their own being so i can't really say like that's my favorite or they all have it's all wonderful they're all wonderful i don't I, there's a couple that i don't really appreciate so much like scorpions and spiders but uh, yeah. they're all, they're all right, you know. I wouldn't invite them for for breakfast, but yeah. Yeah, they they have their own champions. There's they lots of people who love exactly. love them. Yeah, we, do, we exactly. don't need to love them. Other people can. Um, <laughs> where is a place you like to go and connect with nature? The one place you kind of really feel at home. Um, that would be somewhere in Catalonia, where I used to live. So uh, maybe maybe somewhere up in the Pyrenees, actually, it might not even be the coast, funny enough. Um, but yeah, I love, I love being up in the Pyrenees and, and just not seeing anyone and you're just kind of up in the mountains, you get this, this perspective on things and you just see this immensity of nature. Um, so yeah, that would probably be it for me. Do you have a conservation hero? And by this, I mean just someone you look up to and, and think really, um, has done a lot of incredible work and really epitomizes what a conservationist should be. I think it would be um, any of the uh, of the indigenous leaders in the in the Amazon that were um, there was a group of them that won that court case um, against the government in I think was it Ecuador. Um, not sure, but I was so impressed with with these people, and I think generally. Um, I would say all these people who really are in places where they put their lives on the lines. Um, you know, we, we, we are in the situation that we can go out and fight for nature conservation and, uh, and go out on the streets and protest and we're probably not gonna be gunned down in our houses the next day. Um, mm. So yeah, for me, it's really these, these people working under these circumstances. Yeah, yeah, excellent answer. And I, I fully agree. It's, um, I did change the wording of that question a few episodes ago, cause I kind of had a big uh, over the last couple of years, I've had a reevaluation of what I, I talk about when I call myself a conservationist mm -hmm. and also what I mean when I say coffee with conservationists is the title of the podcast. It's definitely gone through a reevaluation of that term, which in, in some countries can be a little problematic to unpack and has yeah. a quite a deeply rooted colonial past, sadly. Yeah. 
Um, so I'm really glad you that was your answer. Um, last off, and a bit more, bit more normal, I guess you could say, a bit more mundane. Um, <laughs> how do you take your coffee? <laughs> um, I take an espresso with a bit of soya milk. So I think we can really wrap it up there. But before we finish, I want to ask where can people find you? Where can my listeners go and support the work you do, both on individual level and uh, as the Plover Rovers? So they, they can just go on our website, plover-rovers.com. And uh, there's a join us button. Um, and uh, we're always looking for, for volunteers. So it's, it's all desk-based, so you don't need to be local. You don't even need to be in the UK. We're always looking for um, guest bloggers. Um, we, we have a pretty active blog. Uh, we're looking for artists to work with us. Um, so we're just really welcoming for everyone. Um, we have a lot of, uh, what, what I think, actually, one thing that I'd, I'd like to say about our volunteers is that um, I was a person who never could afford to volunteer because I always um, had to work uh, like jobs where I got money <laughs> and yeah. uh, I just didn't have uh, because I had to support myself um, and uh, I really wanted to offer people something where they can volunteer even if they don't have the time to commit to you know five hours of volunteering every week or something so our volunteering scheme is basically just really really open um, everyone can do however much they can do and whatever they want to do. And we, we invite all of the volunteers to kind of add their vision to our mission and like do be really creative and bring themselves in as persons. And at the same time, they don't have to commit to doing X hours every week. They can really build it around their lives because I just wanted to give everyone that possibility to be able to volunteer and not just like reserve it for independently wealthy people who, uh, who can afford to give that time. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, th thank you. That's perfect. And uh, I think that website will probably be the first place I go tomorrow morning. Um, cool. Definitely. Well, I've obviously researched it all my guests before I interview them, but uh, I haven't joined yet. So I might have to give that button a click. Um, but thank you. Uh, yeah, so much again for your time. And I really look forward to seeing what the Plover Rovers do in the future. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks again to Scott for taking the time to speak to me today. All the links to his social media will be in the description down below. So in today's episode, we're featuring coffee from Chip Coffee Co. As a small specialty roaster, Chip Coffee Co. pride themselves on working closely with green suppliers, making sure their supply chain is fully traceable and sustainable, and fostering social chains in coffee growing communities. They also try and make a big impact at home with fully recyclable coffee bags and supporting carbon offsetting schemes. All the links to this info will be, as ever, in the description. Coffee with Conservationists is going to be available on early release on a Patreon run by me, George Steedman Jones. If you'd like to become a patron, you gain access to both early release episodes and bonus podcast-related content, as well as my wider natural history storytelling work. It's a way to bring all my work under one roof and support podcast contributors in the process. And it's just that little bit more viable for me than Kofi. If you feel like you learn anything of value of the podcast, please consider becoming a patron through the link in the episode description. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts. And now going forward on early release on my Patreon, as well as a few more streaming services. 
As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman-Jones, and this is Coffee with Conservationists. <laughs>